Hello, hello. Hello, everyone. And welcome to the New York Mr. Machine. Time to haul before ghosts. Before the ghosts. <laughs> um, how you doing, Christina? I'm good. It's a hot August day. <laughs> you guys, you literally, you literally know when we're recording something in advance, when we mention what, what day it is. Like, it's a it's usually wonderful Chris- day in August. <laughs> it's usually me who's like, I'm going <laughs> to. It's like, don't say, don't say, don't say. <laughs> I'm recording in advance now um it's like one time i once described myself on a job interview as quirky um i didn't mean to it just came out of my mouth and then subsequently on the next job interview um i said to myself going in I was like don't say it you're not going to say quirky no quirky don't we're not do we're not don't doing do we're not doing we're not doing it they said how do you describe yourself um i would say what well, uh kooky oh you said kooky? i said kooky it's even worse i know it's literally <laughs> It's worse than saying. It's worse than saying. Quirky. quirky has like some potential for like, oh, whimsical. Oh, she's quirky. She's like Zoe Deschanel. Hmm. Like Zoe Deschanel literally made a career out of that. Out of being quirky, right? Yeah, but not um, kooky. Not kooky. Did you get the job? No. That's fair. That's a fair. I got assessment. the first one. I got the quirky one. But yeah, they don't want to hire a kooky person. I've said some other weird shit on job interviews, but that's a story for another time. That's a, that's a different podcast. <laughs> a different weird <laughs> shit we say on job interviews. Ooh, trademark, Adam Ace, Christina Marinelli. We're keeping that. That's, that's our spinoff. Excellent. Weird shit we've said on job interviews. Honestly? And then what we do is we interview people and we have to talk about the worst we, job interview. Yes. I'm, Adam, giving, I'm Adam. giving this away to the public. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm going to delete all this. No. I both want it in and also we need to start doing it. I know. This is be, that's going to be a great book. I, I think that I would absolutely binge the hell out of that um well uh you know we've had some pretty kooky episodes of the yes, show i like to believe mm. um so i think that kooky and quirky are both accurate in in defense of who you us. are yes thank you i appreciate that um but you know i would also venture to say that we have a lot of quirky mm. patrons yeah see what i did there i, I had to find a way to 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 bring it back steer us back into the podcast that we have (laughs) um and so while we're talking about the quirky wonderful human beings who decide to give us their hard-earned money every month Mm -hmm. uh it's that time of the month where i get to to acknowledge and love them so much so i'd like to just thank once again our og we're gonna call her og she's our favorite she's our first and we love her so much jordan uh then there's sam there's christian and there's christina and there's carla and there's amory and there's all these people who have given us their money thank you very much we thank you we love you thanks for supporting the pod if you want to support the pod you know what you do you know what you do not that Christina <laughs> don't make weird microphone sounds <laughs> um, you head on over to patreon.com slash nymrmachine for as little as three dollars a month you're doing the thing you're already helping us but for five dollars a month oh. you're getting some free stuff you're getting episodes for more than that you're getting other stuff and for more than that you're getting even more stuff even more stuff so more stuff is always good Events coming up things are in the works you don't want to miss them out you don't want to miss out on them not miss them out you could miss them out but don't miss them out or miss out <laughs> So be sure to head on over to our Patreon and uh, for a little as three dollars a month, join this ever-growing community. Christina, mm. what is happening today? Well, um, our kooky podcast is actually staying pretty terrestrial this evening. Whatever. Uh, <laughs> our 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 little this is second podcast of the night energy. Yeah, yeah. Um, Again, y'all know you got you listen. You know when we've 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 re- been through it. When we recorded a little too many. Um. So. We've done treasure hunts on this podcast before. We, we love a treasure hunt. We love a treasure hunt. We've done Dutch Schultz. We've done Captain Kidd. And yet we haven't found Dutch Schultz's treasure yet. No. But then but... we haven't tried. So I guess that's on us. <laughs> nothing ventured, nothing. I guess that's on us, really. <laughs> um, we also did some museums. So famously, the Merchant House Museum, not to mention several other historic houses well, populated by ghosts. The Merchant House Museum, one of the most streamed episodes of, 2000 of our first season. Crazy. 
Exactly. That I'd one. To know. That, that, that same merchant house museum that you the can listen same. to uh, the season one episode of that yeah. if you choose to by going to our uh, to our back catalog and listening. It's all promotion from this day forward, you guys. Yeah. Every every episode of season two is just promoting <laughs> season one again for some reason. I don't know why we would do that, but we're like, just go backwards. Just go back. Go listen to that one. Go listen to it all. Um, but today we're going to combine the two. We're going to combine the treasure hunt. We're going to combine it with some uh, some museums. Love museums. Today, we're going to steal some jewels from the American Museum of Natural History. Wait, the American Museum of Natural History is one of my favorite museums. Someone stole jewels from them? Mm-hmm. Why is it your favorite museum? Out of curiosity. Um, okay. I have no horse in this race. It is not my favorite museum. I oh. used to think it was my favorite museum. Okay. And then I went to other museums. Mm. Um, but it was the first museum I ever went to was the American yeah. His- History Museum. And... Um, and so I just hold a fondness for it in my heart. But I will say, the last time I went to the Museum of Natural History, I was unimpressed. Ah. But you know what gets me about that museum? Mm. The one thing that gets me is just the dinosaurs. Oh, fucking dinosaurs. I think that's what I like about it the most. I don't think I like anything else I think about most it. people hear Museum of Natural History and think of dinosaurs. Like, it's honestly. cool seeing the tools and the stuff from the early civilizations. Okay, I'm honestly, that was that. always my favorite part as a kid, but that's Clearly. because of who I am. Uh, and that's really cool and all too. But like when you walk in and you see that fucking T Rex, and he's like roaring at you, you're yeah. like, "Shit, there's a dinosaur!" Or the blue whale. My the blue whale. blue whale. Blue whale is great. So it used to be my favorite because of all that spectacle. But yeah. then I became a really big New York geek, and now my my favorite is the um, the Museum of New York, Ooh. and I also love the New York Historical Society. Are my two faves in, Good in the both. city. Um, yeah. Nice. Well. They also have gems <laughs> at the, at the, at the natural history. Yeah, exactly. Because that's um, natural history. Exactly. So the American Museum of Natural History, fondly known sometimes as AMNH. Um, I don't think anyone calls it that. Some of us do. <laughs> like they call it Nomad. N- don't a, start with me, Adam. That's a season one callback, you guys. The American Museum of Natural History is located at 200 Central Park West, and it was founded in 1869. Yes, we're doing a little museum history fo- first, by, folks. By who? Well, Albert Smith Bickmore put in the first proposal, and it quickly gained backing, both politically and financially, by some major movers and shakers of New York politics and business. So we are, in fact, talking T.R., your is. friend, Teddy Roosevelt. There he is. <laughs> My friend, T.R. <laughs> T.R. and J. Pierpont Morgan. We're not, I'm not really friends with T.R., just so you know that, guys. I'm not, like, good friends with him. I know that he wasn't the best human being, mm-hmm. so I'm not taking that on my ledger. I just like the fact that I call him T.R. T.R., yeah. <laughs> you're, in that, you're in that name basis. Um, so its mission is to, as you may have picked up from our previous conversation, discover, interpret, and disseminate through scientific research and education knowledge about human cultures, the natural world, and the universe. So in a lot of ways... AMNH is a fascinating specimen of museum history itself. You can sort of trace the lineage of the earliest Wunderkammern, like these small display cabinets. Wunderkammern? Wunderkammern. Um, which are like these small little quixotic, exotic object displays and like cabinets in uh, Europe that eventually become the first public museums and that they were like a mishmash of everything, basically. Yeah. Um, and there's... And this was all part... And this was also part of like... like- TR's whole like vision of like saving uh, like the one thing that TR believed in the most was um saving shit like he wanted to save all of the the national park I mean he's an institute mm-hmm. player in the national park museum in the natural park movement um and, and and all that stuff and so he truly believed in places where we can yeah. find all this stuff and and be able to hold on to it so Yeah and there is this really I mean look museums have a real 
colonialist problem in display and acquisition and all of these things. Yeah. And also there is at its core and it's laden, but like there is this educational mission as well that this is a public yeah museums good. Are, museums are so complicated right because there's that, that famous moment in like Indiana Jones where he's like it belongs in a museum like, actually it belongs with the people who it belongs to mm, go figure <laughs> like it belongs to yeah. the the people who you dug it up land you dug yep. it up from yep so it's that very combative relationship that people have with you and that was a big thing with with Teddy Roosevelt right mm-hmm. he was like let's put all this stuff in a museum instead of giving it to the people who actually mm-hmm. Like, it's their stuff. It's their history. Right. right. It's really fraught, and it's a fascinating history. Um, so, yeah. So, if uh, if you were to go there today, you have the dinosaurs, you have wildlife dioramas, you have displays of human evolution, little little nod to Lucy, the fabulous big blue whale, planetariums, um, and, of course, minerals and gems from our little planet. So. Our little planet. Our little planet. Um, so... The mineral and gems have been part of the museum since it opened in 1869. Uh, in 1874, it had its first like major acquisition of minerals. Um, it purchased between 5,000 and 7,000 specimens from Jeez. someone. That's like an insane amount, that's right? A crazy amount of minerals. Yeah, I, that's why I'm going through. I'm like, this is kind of wild. Um, in 1889, in preparation for the Exposition Universelle in Paris, George F. Kunz, who worked for Tiffany and Company as a gemologist. Uh, That's a real job. Real job. Purchased a whole mess of gems um, for that show under the collection title, quote, Gems and Precious Stones from North America. This had 382 entries and won a gold medal. And eventually, because J.P. Morgan purchased the collection, it became known as the Tiffany Morgan Collection. And in 1900, um, they collected another two over 2,000 specimens, including 2,000 pearls and another 12,000 specimens acquired by Morgan. And all of these um, are given to uh, AMNH. And if you're wondering how to conceptualize such a large number of gems, this should help. Two whole railroad boxcars were needed in order to move the entirety of the collection to the Natural History Museum. Wowzer. So that's a lot. Um, and uh, per the, the website, quote, when late Harvard mineralogist Charles Palash uh, saw the collection for the first time in 1898, he wrote, quote, all day I have feasted my eyes on minerals such as I scarcely dreamed existed. And so this is the collection that we're focusing on. And specifically, our thieves have managed to take away um, in what is America's largest jewel heist for the record um some of the most spectacular and valuable gems there are um and we'll get to this but they weren't even insured at the time that they were robbed wait i'm Mm -hmm. sorry you are donating like a shit ton uh, like a kajillion dollars of jewels yep and you didn't insure none you did not, not, not insured i feel like that's the first thing you do Yep. With jewel, I don't have any jewels, so I wouldn't know. But I assume. But I'm assuming if I had a jewel, if I had a jewel, I'd be like, I guess I gotta insure this jewel in case anything ever happens to this jewel. So we're gonna talk just about a couple. I, mean, of I insure the- my phone. <laughs> my phone is insured. But they didn't insure the jewels, and to give you a sense of like why these. But also, are- truth be told, when they ask me if I want to insure my phone, I always say no. So I guess mm. I'm also living on the edge. It's true. I need. To- <laughs> <laughs> Season two is weird, you guys. Season two is loopy. <laughs> so there are three jewels in particular that were like the creme de la creme. So the first is a milky blue star of India is what it's known as. Um, it's the size of a golf ball. Uh, it weighs 563.35 carats. It's the world's largest sapphire. Um, and 
it looks like it has an actual star in it. So I've got a picture here for you just because it was real pertilic. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about a sapphire having an asterism. It looks like a starburst. Oh, that's really cool. Right? You'll see a picture when we post it. Um, it's a star-shaped concentration of like the way it refracts light. Um, and this gives it an extra, it's, it's extra rare, right? So this increases its um, value. Um, so this particular gem was acquired by uh, a Tiffany gem expert, uh, same one mentioned earlier. Um, there's also the DeLong star ruby, which is an orchid red ruby. Um, it's the most perfect specimen of ruby it's considered. What makes a ruby a perfect specimen? Well, I think it also has to do because it's, again, it's another star ruby. Um, oh, yeah, so yeah, I sure. think it, it I, I don't know beyond that. I imagine it has to do like fancy gem words like yeah, yeah. clarity and do you know, star. Do, do you know who would know? Who would know? The gemologist. The gemologist. The gemologist would know. Um, and then also stolen was the eagle diamond, which um, which is kind of fun to note simply because it remains at large. That is, it has never been recovered since this heist. So go looking through, I don't know, your neighbor's jewelry boxes. You never know. If you go you, When you go to a flea market and you see just, that, like, that you, the costume jewelry. Right. And if you see, like, I don't know, a diamond the size of, you know, your fist. Maybe it's, it's probably real. It's, pro it's probably real. It's probably real. Gotta you gotta try. <laughs> So here are our dramatis personae for the day. First up is the mastermind of the whole operation, a man named Murph the Smurf. I'm you... sorry, no, Murph the Surf. Okay. But doesn't make it much better. <laughs> I was about to say, Christina, you just use the phrase mastermind and Smurf in the same sentence. Yeah. Uh, it is Murph the Surf. But does, still. Does, he, does he surf or is he part of the surf um, level of... Of, of Smurfs, of, uh, or no? Like when you're a surf, like is oh it... no, it's surf. Like he's he's a surfer. Dude. He hangs ten. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> but no one calls you with a surf. <laughs> surf isn't a title. It's... Oh god. He also spells so it should be so. He was born in Oceanside, California, in 1937, as Jack Ronald Murphy. Um, although he later uses Roland as his middle name, and prefers to go by the spelling Murph the Surf, M U R F the S U R F, which is why I keep confusing it with Smurf. I think. Um, so at 18, according to him, he had quite the life. At 18, he claims he was a concert violinist with the Pittsburgh Symphony. He was a star athlete who won the first tennis scholarship for the University of Pittsburgh and a national surfing champion who won two times over. Um, he died in 2020, but here's a bit from his New York Times bio, uh, or rather obit. Um, quote, he told the Times that his father had been a telephone lineman, but told the East Coast Surf Legends Hall of Fame that he had been an electrical contractor, always on the move. He said he had attended 12 grade schools and three high schools. He claimed to have a photographic memory, but in the Times interview, he could not identify any of the schools or the years he attended them. <laughs> <laughs> this guy. This guy's just a con man. Yeah, it's great. His IQ, per the Florida Correctional Authorities, was 143, uh, which is in the 99.8 percentile of scores. So he is quite, you know, the mastermind. Um, and spoiler alert, he does eventually get convicted, but of a brutal homicide, um, which has nothing to do with this. And it was quite gruesome. He does eventually also end up in the prison ministry, which I think is a fascinating turnaround. Um, but his biggest claim is this. In 1964, Murph was a cat burglar in Miami working alongside Alan Kuhn, um, or Kuhn, Kuhn? Hmm. who first brought Murph into burglary. And together they plundered works of art on the waterfront of Miami. Uh, eventually, Kuhn said to Vanity Fair some years ago, they would end up uh, calling art insurers and then trade in what they found for cash. It was always about the thrill of the chase they said it was never about the money oh that's fascinating yeah um and then eventually roger clark who's a house painter gets like dragged into this as well 
he's a minor character here. So in the autumn of 1964, the trio drove up from Miami to Manhattan and rented a penthouse at the Cambridge House Hotel on West 86th Street. Now, it's no longer a hotel today. It was converted into an assisted living facility for seniors. Um, it's now known as Atria West 86. But its location uh, at 333 West 86th Street gave ready access to the Natural History Museum. It's only a couple blocks away. And so they started out in New York by hosting these fabulous all-night parties filled with drugs, and they would rob folks in midtown bars and hotels. Um, and here's the thing. Their plan for the museum heist wasn't exactly the most elegant plan, necessarily. It was more fortuitous than anything else. Mm. So when they wandered around the museum to case the joint, they were aware that the security was particularly lax, if the lack of insurance wasn't a tip-off to that. So uh, in 2019, Murph told the Times, Alan said he could hear the jewels talking. He said, the jewels are saying, take us to Miami. So I said, well, let's take him to Miami. And if this seems blasé to you, uh, Murph added, it was really no big deal. A job like this, we could pull off any time. This was the same as saying, let's go bowling. So on Thursday night, the night of October 29th, they went back to the museum. Now, Roger Clark stays outside. He's going to play lookout. Murph and Alan... Uh, scale the iron fence outside the museum and they climb the fire escape to the fifth floor window. This brought them to a little ledge, like super narrow, like you're going to fall off this stupid little ledge. So they're inching along this little ledge and there's a pillar just above the fourth floor window. And the window there was wide open. Mm. So they tie a rope around the pillar and Murph swings down and into the window and like that they're inside. So there's an open window that's just left open of the museum, and that's how they get in. Here's the thing. Sometimes you just deserve to be robbed. <laughs> I mean, there's an open window to the Museum of Natural History. Yep. I mean, I'm sure it's not now. I'm sure they have bolted everything shut. I'm sure they shut. bolted it. But you say to yourself, self, um, I have not just America's, mm. but like the world's history mm -hmm. locked up in this building. Mm -hmm. Do you think we should leave a window open? Yeah, it gets kind of, you know, humid in here. It's overnight. musty in here. <laughs> it's musky in here. I can't think when uh, I come in and it's a little too uh, warm in the morning. So the jewels themselves, when they get, so they get into the building, they go to the galleries. The jewels themselves were behind some extremely thick glass and they didn't want to risk smashing the cases in case it makes too much noise and alerts any of the, you know, the guards. So instead of just going smashy, smashy, they use glass cutters and they make little circles in the glass. And there's no like silent alarms. There's like like in the entire like museum. Like we'll get to that. Like when you got into the actual museum. Put it this way: nothing is sounding. They I just swing into an open window. <laughs> Good on them. I mean, I know we're not supposed to cheer for the crooks, right? But this is like a, a, a this is on you. This yeah. This is this is this is bad. This is lax. Um, and also, you know, this is a nonviolent crime. I don't feel. Yeah, I'm okay no. cheering for the for the crooks in this one. Um. So they do the little circles and then they cover it with duct tape. Why duct tape? Apparently it strengthens the glass to prevent shattering on removal and also was like a muffler. Found that fascinating personally. Um, they pulled the cut pieces out with a rubber or suction cup and began filling their coffers with the jewels. They end up opening just three cases and making off 22 jewels. But as we mentioned earlier, those jewels are some of the finest and rarest of their kind yeah or notable for their size and with just those 22 jewels altogether they would be worth more than three million today jeez and so just as easily as they managed in the trio or the duo went back out to the street met up with their third 
And like they go back up the window. I think so. It doesn't really detail how they got back out, but I imagine they just went the way they came. Because why not? It worked the first time. Worked yeah, on the I mean, way in. The, again, absolutely, you deserve to do this. And uh, one more note on just the, the cavalier cool attitude they kept. There were some cops on their beat at the street level. And when they passed by, Murph greeted them and just said, good evening, officers, and walked off with his bag of jewels. <laughs> that checks out. Uh, so that's that's what happens that night. Um, and before we get into the hunt for for the missing jewels, for the thieves... Let's take a break. Let's do it. I hope no one steals anything while we're away. <laughs> that not, not a good. My puns are dying. Aren't they? <laughs> They're not good anymore. It's okay. We'll be right back. So you listen to our podcast, which means you must love mysteries. But how would you like to solve your very own mystery? Hunt a Killer is an immersive murder mystery game told over the course of six episode boxes. Each box is filled with different clues and physical items such as autopsy reports, witness statements, and more. You'll use these clues to solve an ongoing murder mystery. Work solo or as a team of sleuths to finally crack the case and reveal the murderer. So do you think you have what it takes to hunt a killer? If so, head to www.huntakiller.com and use the code NYMYSTERYMACHINE for 20% off the first box. That's www.huntakiller.com and the code is NYMYSTERYMACHINE. Sign up now and begin the hunt. The New York Mystery Machine is brought to you in part by listeners like you. That's right. Head on over to our Patreon, and for as little as $3 a month, you can help keep the pod growing. By joining, you can access a whole bunch of cool stuff, such as mini-episodes, swag, exclusive playlists, and more. Head to www.patreon.com slash nymysterymachine to find out more and become a patron. That's www.patreon.com slash nymysterymachine and join our ever-growing community today. If you ever look at our logo, you may notice a cute, furry, black-and-white creature hanging out the window. That's Ted. When he's not hanging out inside the New York Mystery Machine, Ted is enjoying treats from BarkBox. BarkBox is the dog-obsessed company that's devoted to one goal, making dogs happy. It's a monthly subscription, totally customized box of themed toys and treats for your furry friends. BarkBox provides the best products, services, and content for pups and their people. Every box brings your dog more than $40 worth of toys and treats. Your first box ships immediately. Plus, BarkBox offers a 100% happy guarantee. If your pup isn't happy with their BarkBox, they'll work to make it right. So are you ready to spoil your pup with a BarkBox of their very own? If so, head over to www.barkbox.com slash nymysterymachine. If you use our exclusive link, you'll get a free extra month of BarkBox, valued at $35, when you sign up for multi-length plans. Okay, okay, Tedward. I'll say it again for them. Head to www.barkbox.com slash nymysterymachine and get your pup some treats today. All right, we are back. So we've stolen some jewels. We haven't, but someone has. Someone has. And deservingly so. Murph the Surf, not the Smurf. 
uh, has stolen I've some never jewels. been like, you've earned this more than these guys who sold these jewels. Just you wait. Just You're going to learn wait. a little bit more about the uh, delightful security regime at the time. Here we go. Uh, remember, this is 1964, but still. But still. But still. So at 9 a.m. on October 30th, John Hoffman, age 58, a museum employee for 37 years at the time, opened up a hall of minerals and gems and discovered what no security officer wants to discover. They'd been burgled. Like shit's missing. Shit's missing. Shit's gone down. Oh, no, 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 no. Um, by 10 a.m., a call is going through to the 20th precinct. I kind of want to know what happened between 9 a.m. and 10 a.m. personally, but whatever. It's just it's just that poor guy going shit, 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 shit. Shit, 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 shit. 10 a.m. the call goes through the 20th precinct that there was a break-in at the Museum of Natural History. Detective Jack McNally, along with a few colleagues, arrive and enter the Hall of Gems. Now, despite the apparent care to keep things, you know, quiet and not all go all smashy smashy the hall of gems was described as a total mess in a 2019 retrospective on the heist uh here's a quote from that it was described as having numerous display cases shattered the cabinets broken and their contents pillaged we were thinking it was some tiny thing mcnally remembered in that same article the whole place though was a wreck he would also tell vanity fair that they ended up notifying the district commander. The district commander notified the borough chief. The borough chief notified the police commissioner. And soon all the big, like, the big bosses of the police system show up. Yeah. Um, and, of course, that means the press wasn't far behind, right? So, uh, assuming that Murphy Surf et al. were reading the papers that morning, they probably would have been pretty, pretty pleased by some of the descriptors used. So, here is an excerpt from the October 31st edition of the... New York Daily News. Adam, would you kindly just read this delightful little highlight right there? Here we go. This is the first of the year. It's the first of the year. It's the first of the year, yo. Theft on three priceless international famous gems and 19 lesser stones from the sprawling Museum of Natural History was discovered yesterday. The crime touched off an international manhunt for a master burglar who has written a chapter in criminal history that rivals anything in fiction. Dr. James A. Oliver, director of the museum, said there was no insurance and that a valuation could not be made. Quote, you cannot take items such as these, which are priceless, and get insurance on them, he said. Quote, you can't put value on them. Lloyds of London won't insure a dinosaur. So that's their excuse for not having insurance. They're just so... Is nothing in the museum insured? At this time, I don't know. These were not, which makes you wonder. And well, the dinosaur example yeah, makes you go, makes me wonder oh, that, shit. Like, he's talking about not just like the jewels. He's like, nothing in this place is insured because like, how do I insure a dinosaur? Which also, fair. <laughs> I like the way your face changes. Like, as fair. I'm saying it, I, he- I hear the words. <laughs> fair. How, how do you what insure a dinosaur? evaluation do you put on dinosaur bones? Um, real important, lot of money. That's not a real number, though. Real important shit. <laughs> um, I just think that's an incredible quote. I no, it's think great. It's like, I, you guys, it's not our fault. It's not our fault. You, you want to tell me how much they're worth? Nobody knows. It's basically like he's saying, money's made up, which it is. Um, <laughs> so th- he goes on a whole tirade about it. In fact, the whole financial <laughs> system is just really messed up in this country. Late capitalism. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so the same article goes on to detail some of the other security issues faced by the museum. So... We already talked about the fourth floor window being open, but there was little to no insurance on the stolen items. 
apparently the guards who had been on duty were present at the museum, but the size of the security force itself was too small to adequately cover the museum. So there had been seven guards on duty between 5 p.m. and 7 a.m. on Friday. Seven guards for the whole museum. That's, That's a, a big museum. Fucking huge museum. Seven guards. And that, so like, yeah, five floors, basements, attics, storerooms, all of that seven guards and the director confirmed the state of affairs saying quote our present attendant force is scarcely adequate it's a serious problem and to make matters worse the daily news adds quote another museum spokesman disclosed a glaring weakness in security measures the museum he said had an alarm system which was supposed to go off if any of the institution's more valuable pieces were removed however he said the system had not been working for some time oh my god for some time for some time and they just were like well no, no, one's gonna, gonna no one's gonna do it. No one's, no one's gonna. What about that open window? Nah. Have they been robbed at all ever before that? I guess not. I don't. I guess not. No. I. I don't know. Because that usually that's what happens, right? You right. get robbed, and then you like you do the things to make sure you're never robbed again. Well, this hurts, Adam. This is how I got apartment <laughs> insurance. <laughs> this is how I got apartment insurance. This is literally why Christina got apartment insurance because someone robbed her apartment. And that's just yep. insurance on it. And I'm like, hmm. That insurance thing. So name name something you have common with the American National Muse- <laughs> Natural History Museum. Didn't have insurance, now I do. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, I, I guess it's 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 not just you, Museum of Natural History. It can happen to anyone. Okay. Can happen to all of us. Now, granted, what was in your apartment is not like wasn't the diamonds. Diamonds. It wasn't diamonds. Um, no dinosaur bones either. So. What the cops didn't know at the time was that the perpetrators had already left the state. So that very morning, Murph the Surf and Alan Kuhn had boarded a plane back to Miami while Clark had taken the car they'd driven up to into Connecticut. Apparently he had some family there and decided uh, to have a little visit. I don't know. Sure. Rob Museum have a family reunion. Along with Murph the Surf and Kuhn was an unwitting participant, Janet Florkiewicz. Uh, a 19-year-old woman from Staten Island who had gotten a job at Wall Street insurance firms as a secretary and had recently taken an apartment at, you guessed it, the Cambridge House Hotel, which is where she met Kuhn. Mm. So the two started to ha- have a bit of a tryst, and they went on several dates to the Museum of Natural History, Aww. completely unaware that this was him really there to case the joint. Oh, gosh. So... Like, can you imagine going on that date and being like, oh, um, are you having a great time? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, how many guards do you see over there? Uh, Just the one? Cool, 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 cool. Did anyone see me touch this dinosaur bone? Did anyone anyone notice that? No? There's no alarm going off. What are you doing? You're not supposed to touch things. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, so she gets on the flight. She's sitting um, in a separate row from her fling and his friend. Um, but she's on this plane. They had given her a yellow case, which unbeknownst to her, was stuffed with the gems. So per a Vanity Fair journalist named Meryl Gordon, quote, she never was told what was in that case. They seated her in a different row and bought different tickets. So if anything had happened, this young girl would have been the one the authorities would have gotten. Wow. That is, that's, um, that's, that's rough. That's rough. Um, when they arrived in Miami, Bonnie Lou Sutera, Murph's girlfriend at the time, picked them up at the airport. They all went back to Kuhn's apartment. Janet was sent out for something. I don't know what the errand is, but like she was sent out. Yeah. And Kuhn and Murph examined their, their hall. Uh, Murph would later remember, when you'd roll them, boom, boom, they looked like little explosions. So an all-out manhunt is underway at the same time that this is going on. Airports, seaports, border crossings, all of these are on alert. Interpol is told to keep an eye out. Um, And a few events occur that allow the cops to get the trio. First, they tipped 
extremely well, like very well, crazy well at the hotel. So when the news of the heist hit papers, hotel workers informed the cops. Yeah. Um, apparently, they had even tipped a bellboy $100 just for delivering some liquor. Uh, they'd bought two cases of soda pop just to get the bottle caps for um, in order to like flip the caps at the wall. And so a night or two later, the desk clerk of the hotel called over a patrolling vice squad detective named James Walsh and said, there are three guys in this place who are spending money like wild. Meanwhile, Janet, poor Janet, calls her roommate. And uh, meanwhile, Janet calls her roommate back in New York and says she's being held in Florida against her will and was frightened. So her roommate contacts the police. The two things were learned by the investigating officers at about the same time. And so they descend upon um, the hotel where uh, the, the group had been staying in New York. And in the hotel room, they find photos of the museum, tools, scales, heroin, maps of the museum, a sneaker embedded with glass. So they just sort of left all of their goods there. Just all of the things they used to plan in the hotel room. Just like, yeah, we'll keep it here. Nobody's going to notice. Which is insane to me. Like someone's going to notice when they clean it up. They're going to be like, hmm, how odd. Why would you? It doesn't, it very stupidly planned. Um, so Officer McNally decides, well, they were stupid enough to do this, right? So let's hang out at the penthouse. See if anybody plans on coming back to get it. And sure enough, the next morning Clark did just that. So they get Clark and down at the precinct, eventually Clark gives up Coon and Murph. Detective Maline. He's like, yeah, it was them. Yeah, yep. It was these guys. I mean, how do you even like argue against it when you have maps of the museum that was just hauled and there's glass in the inside of your sneakers and like all of those things? Yeah, I mean, like there's no. It's, it's pretty. It's pretty clear that you. you, you yeah. You don't. And then you walked into the hotel room. And then you walk into the hotel room and the cop is there and you're like, "No, this isn't my. Oh, weird. This, this isn't my room. This not my room." Um, I just left some shit here. <laughs> so Detective Maylene writes, um, Clark for a short time denied any complicity or any knowledge of the burglary of the museum. But after some applied psychology, he did make full admissions to the part, uh, uh, to the part he played and implicated K and M as his accomplices. Now, Clark would later claim that that applied psychology was actually police brutality. Writing in a deposition, quote, I was beaten and assaulted by one of them who kicked me with his booted feet and struck and jabbed me with a blackjack. So he turns over Murph and uh, Coon. And so Miami police arrive and they get Coon, they get Murph, they get Janet, they get Murph's girlfriend, Sutera. Uh, but they're still having trouble locating the gems. Coon later said that he had hidden them in the ceiling in the hallway outside the apartment. But Murph had a slightly different story and said that they were in the garbage can in the, the apartment. Either way, the cops somehow don't find them that day. Now, Janet was arrested and placed under custody and brought... Uh, to New York City, while Murphy and Kuhn await bail. They were eventually extradited to Manhattan, where they, along with Clark, were charged with first-degree burglary and possession of burglary tools, which I didn't know were was a crime, per se. Yeah. <laughs> um, and were they were treated like celebrities. Apparently, there were, like, huge crowds that would, like, gather and would cheer as they walked by. Now, to this day, Janet apparently is quite haunted by the whole scenario. Um, and even Kuhn said that he has regrets that they used her this way and wishes that he could get in touch to make amends. Um, but no one's ever been but able to get in touch. But you can't because, like, she doesn't want to deal with you anymore. Yeah. Because you were literally were like, worst case scenario, you're going to go to jail while we're all fine. Yeah. Yeah. I feel so bad, though. Yeah. Why won't you record my phone calls? <laughs> 
It's so weird. What did I do? I just pushed a in 1964. <laughs> one time. One time, Janet. <laughs> try to pick a try to pick a heist on you. <laughs> God. So eventually the police had to release the trio because there was only circumstantial evidence. Um, Now, back in Miami, Kuhn was able to sell the Eagle Diamond, the one that's still missing, and some smaller jewels. Um, And then because he was having trouble with some of the big ticket items, he buried the stones in a friend's yard. Now, the real break for the police comes when Maurice Najari, the Manhattan prosecutor of the case, found a Miami cold case where Eva Gabor and her husband were pistol whipped in Miami in 1964. And her diamond ring was stolen. Oh, my God. Eva Gabor picked Murph and Kuhn out of a lineup. And Najari got them extradited back to Manhattan. So on January, uh, in January 1965, the three men were brought up on charges. Bail was set at $150,000 per person. That checks out. And when they couldn't get the money, they were brought to the tombs, that infamous jailhouse in New York. Oh, my gosh. The tombs. The tombs. The tombs have shown up a couple of times. Um, Kuhn decided it was time to make a deal quote jack did not want to do it he would have toughed it out but i think we would still be in prison if we hadn't given the jewels back so coon gave up the gems in exchange for a lighter sentence but not all the gems so the delong star still missing and coon suspected that his friend had uh dug it up before the police had even arrived so it wasn't until a month later that poor jan was released from custody she'd been held as a witness and the prosecution argued she was a flight risk because she was young and immature um, April 6th, 1965, Coon, Murph, and Clark pled guilty to burglary and grand larceny, and they got three years at Rikers Island. Meanwhile, Francis P. Antel, a writer, learned about, um, learned a little bit about where the rubies might be, and eventually he got a meeting with John D. MacArthur. Yep, that MacArthur, the bajillionaire whose foundation like the gives- the genius? Yep, that MacArthur. <laughs> He's not the genius per se, but- But like, he gives out the genius grant. he gives out the genius grant. And so MacArthur was willing to pay $25,000 in exchange for the ruby. Essentially, you know, there was this story that, like, if you set me up and, like, get me immunity, I might know a guy who has it right now. You never want a a situation where you're like, I know a guy. I know a guy. I got a guy for that. Um, And MacArthur was willing to to go along with this. Uh, He would eventually tell the Daily News, if the museum thought that this was important enough to have placed it on view for everybody in the world to see and appreciate, then I would go along with the scheme to buy it back and bail it out for the public. Which is like a real gee whiz energy. So Antel relays the instructions of this this contact, who was actually the friend that Kuhn had buried, you know, the yard that he had buried it in. Um, and the Daily News, who had been a part of this scheme to find the rubies and set up the meeting with MacArthur, sent their, their reporter, a guy named Federici, to get it. And apparently he gets a call, is told to reach over the ledge of a service plaza on the Sunshine State Parkway. And sure enough, there it is. Oh, my gosh. The ruby. So that's not, you can't find that now. You, It's back. That oh. one got back. It's the Eagle Diamond. Oh, the Eagle Diamond. Is the one that is still out there. And they suspect it may even have been carved up into smaller diamonds at this point Oof. because it would be easier to move that way. Sure, 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 sure. So the guys, here's a little epilogue for you. The guys were released in 1967. Roger Clark became a bartender and golf pro and even worked in a French restaurant. Murph and Kuhn went back to being jewel thieves in Miami for a time. Kuhn eventually married and moved to L.A., as did Murph. Murph eventually, as I mentioned earlier, was convicted of murder um, and eventually became ordained and served as a prison minister. Um, There was a 1974 movie about the robbery called Murph the Surf. 
Oh my god, you used the Murph to surf as the title? You yep, guys. Yep, yep, yep. Guess what the title of this episode is? Oh no. Murph the Surf. <laughs> it can't be that. I'm I Vito. Vito. Vito Murph the Surf. Murph the Surf rides again. No one's gonna click on this to listen to this if I name it Murph the Surf. If I name it Murph the Smurf. Maybe. Maybe. Clark died in 2007, Murph in 2020. Janet was never prosecuted mercifully. Still out there somewhere, unwilling to talk to press. Living her life. Living her life. And poor, of course, poor Janet. Poor Janet. And some of the jewels remain at large. So check those garage sales. If you have a jewel, you you head over to NY Mystery Machine. <laughs> let us know. You can't do anything with it. No. It's a stolen jewel. It's not yours. Right. Let's return it. But I wonder if there's reward money. I don't know. People... Cut this from the episode so we can get the... Re- they turn it into us. We turn it into the police. <laughs> yeah, it's fair. That's fair. Well, there it is, you guys. <laughs> That's the, the, the America's largest jewel heist. And it happened right here in, in New York. A little New York. In Upper Manhattan. Just a little little PSA. Ensure your dinosaurs. I think that's the lesson we need to learn to insure your dinosaurs. Sure That'd be a good dinosaurs. t-shirt. Insure your dinosaurs. <laughs> I want that t-shirt. We have so many ideas. Yeah. I'm going to start making some, some t-shirts. I want all of them. Insure your dinosaurs, folks. <laughs> well, for the dinosaurs here at the New York Mystery Machine, uh, this has been a, a wonderful little situation. A little, little light. little light. Uh, I know. We've, we've had a very dark. We had some dark episodes. We've had a dark season to uh, beginnings. Needed to like really... I don't know what that meant. Poor Janet. Poor Janet. She's all right. Janet, she if, you're, married, she's Janet if you're listening to this, which you know we are, we know you're listening, clearly. Obviously. Just, you don't have to go back to us. You don't, we, don't hear, we know you don't hear from us. We don't hear, just want to tell you something. You know what? Everyone has bad dates. Everyone goes on a bad date. And sometimes yeah. the guy scouting out a heist. Yeah. It gets better. Boom, 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 the more you know. Okay. I've been Adam Mays. Christina Marinelli. And thank you for taking a ride on the very not stolen New York Mystery Machine. Tammany Hall, but for uninsured ghosts. Insure your ghosts, folks.